The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Aligning Nursing Care Strategies with Evolving Patient Needs in RCC. Interprofessional Insights on Optimizing Outcomes with Novel Targeted and Immune-Based Therapies. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash ASX860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to our program this evening. We're all very excited to have you here. We're looking forward to a very, what we would like to call a very interactive uh, session tonight. I have two distinguished colleagues that we are going to uh, present information to you on kidney cancer and the nurse's role. My name is Nancy Muldauer, and I will be the moderator this evening for, for this program. And to my right, I have Archana Ajmera from uh, San Diego, the Moore's Cancer uh, Center, and Dr. Raina McKay, also from the Moore Cancer Center at UC San Diego. So again, my name is Nancy Muldauer, and I am a research nurse at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center, and I specialize in the care of uh, patients with kidney cancer. And again, as I mentioned earlier, we're really enthusiastic and excited to be here tonight to talk to you about some of the unmet needs in taking care of the patients with renal cell carcinoma. During the conference that I, uh, at ONS this year and talking to different people, there seems to be kind of like a buzzword of what they're calling the unmet needs of patients with advanced uh, kidney cancer. And I hope that uh, by having this symposium tonight and by you attending this lecture, we can start to bridge the gap between uh, the unmet needs by these educational type of programs. So nursing clearly has an impact in the care of patients with kidney cancer. And we're going to identify a couple of these unmet needs tonight during our program. And one of the first unmet needs we're going to talk about is a patient who is diagnosed with kidney cancer, has a mass on their kidney, usually it's on the kidney or maybe just localized disease, but there are very few of these patients who are actually referred to clinical trials for what we call adjuvant therapy. Because these are patients that have a high risk of recurrence. But what you're going to hear in our case studies and in our panel discussions is actually some very interesting data from some adjuvant trials in kidney cancer. And the other uh, interesting piece that we have heard, and it's been, some, it's been from some real-world uh, analysis of some of the data, of patients who actually receive these novel therapies in the community setting. And what we have learned is that many of these patients are actually having their therapies discontinued early on as opposed to, you know, a, perhaps they have a side effect or a physician is not comfortable in, in taking care of, of these type of medications. And so that's really when nursing comes in because what we want to strive to you tonight is to go over the side effects, what the nursing management interventions are, so that patients can indeed stay on these drugs a little bit longer and have better outcomes from their treatment. And as pivotal members of the oncology team, nurses have roles in supportive care, adverse event management, 
and and that's just to name a few. So the nurse is really quite integral in taking care of patients on these newer combinations of treatment. And again, the longer the patient has been on, can stay on these therapies, uh, the better outcome. And you'll hear about that tonight. So for those of you who maybe don't have a lot of experience in, in uh, kidney cancer, I just want to kind of give an overview. And we're going to look at, um, in this particular slide, the cases by the stage. And what you can see, I, I like this green pointer, is that roughly about 65% of the patients with kidney cancer will be diagnosed when their tumor is disconfined to the kidney, or they, what we call localized disease. That's about 65% of the patients. Some of the patients have some uh, degree of uh, regional metastases involving the lymph nodes. It's another 16%. Maybe another 16% will present with metastatic disease at the time of diagnosis. And then there's a small number of patients who, for whatever reasons, it's just difficult to stage. So there's about an estimated maybe 80,000 cases in 2022. There seems to be a predominance for male over female incidence. Estimated deaths about 14,000 this year. And the median age of diagnosis when we see patients diagnosed with kidney cancer is roughly about you know, 64, 65 years of age. And this particular slide and the number when I talk about the five-year relative survival rate is 75%, and you can say, oh, that's not a bad number for, uh, for this type of cancer. But I want to emphasize that that number refers to patients that have been treated, and it's different than if, you, if a patient has not been treated and has, is diagnosed with kidney cancer. So I wanted to show some pictures. Uh, not into, we don't have to get into the real, real nitty-gritty of staging, but as you probably know, the lower the number of stage, the smaller the cancer, the better prognosis. But as you get to stage two, three, and four, you can see that the five-year survival by stage decreases. And it's actually the stage two patients and the stage three patients that we're gonna focus on in our first case study when we talk about those patients that actually present with regional disease, maybe they just have a tumor on their kidney, or maybe they have some local spread uh, to the lymph nodes. But those are the patients that are, that are at a high risk of recurrence and will develop metastatic disease. And those are the patients that we want to uh, find for those um, and have discussions with about adjuvant therapy. So most of the time, when we look at the pathology of kidney cancer patients and their tumors removed, you're going to see a very common histology. It's what we call clear cell carcinoma. It's close to about 75% of the cases will have clear cell. But there's other types of histology that patients with kidney cancer can develop. The second most common is what we call cap papillary type of carcinoma, type 1 and type 2. Other types, much less um, frequent, but certainly if you are in a busy kidney cancer practice, you will see these. Chromophobe, translocation, collecting duct, and an unclassified type of kidney cancer. So a quick guide, uh, and jumping right into the type of treatments that we use today in kidney cancer, and 
when I was presented with these slides, I said to myself, I really like these because they're simple, but they're very meaningful. And when, immuno when the most recent type of immunotherapy came out for uh, kidney cancer patients, I said to myself, how am I really going to understand this type of therapy? Because it's just not easy. So years and years of reading and giving talks and, and listening to uh, you know, different physicians speak, we know that cancer cells, they do avoid detection by our own body's immune system. So you have your cancer cell, you have your T cell from the, the immune system, and although they're not connected in this particular slide, they are really connected by various type of receptors. But the point is that the cancer cell, because it has all these different receptors on their surface, it just kind of blocks the immune cell from doing what it's supposed to do. And as an anti-cancer strategy, when we give these immune checkpoint inhibitors, and again, many, many of you may have heard the term, it's like taking the brakes off uh, the body's immune system. Another analogy that I like to use is keeping a light switch in the on position, because what you're doing is you're allowing the T cell to actually communicate with the cancer cell by blocking the, the connection. And the next slide that I'm gonna show is a good slide that shows the connection that I'm talking about. And another term that is frequently used when we talk about immunotherapy and different type of cancers is what we call the tumor microenvironment. And I like to think of that, of this as just kind of an area where the tumor cells live. It has a lot of blood vessels, it has a lot of immune cells in it, and it just kind of allows the cancer to thrive. And if you look at the slide over here, you've got your tumor cell, you've got a T cell here, and it's called, it's labeled not active or inactivation. And it's because of all of these connections here on the receptors of the tumor cell and on the T cell. So of course, it, of course the T cell cannot do what it's supposed to do because it's, because it's being blocked or it has breaks on it. So you start giving some immunotherapy, whether it's an anti-PDL1 or anti-PD1, and these monoclonal antibodies actually connect with the receptors and it prevents this block or this connection from occurring. And when this connection cannot occur, the T cell is activated and then it can do its thing to actually eliminate the cancer. So for those of us that have been taking care of, can of kidney cancer patients for a long, long time, we love to show slides of where we've been and where we are today. You may have seen, you know, arrows with all sorts of treatments. I just kind of, we kind of reworked it because I wanted to really emphasize the role that the nurses have had um, in the evolution of treatment for kidney cancer. So back in the 80s and the 90s, and we call that the cytokine era. That was when drugs like interferon and IL-2 were administered. And I'll just kind of share a few stories with you. Um, when I was working at UCLA, we had a tremendous IL-2 program. But because we were an innovative cancer center, we had to give IL-2 in a different way. 
So we would give it as sub-Q injections, or we would give it as a continuous infusion, and literally we would send patients home with Tylenol, a narcotic prescription, and say, okay, take two Tylenol, make sure you take your narcotic about two hours after you, you know, take the, sh the shot, because you're going to get these horrible rigors. And we did this as outpatients, we did it at home, and it was such a crude way of taking care of patients. But nonetheless, it got us to where we are today. So in 1992, when IL-2 was approved, that's all we basically had was Heidel's IL-2 therapy for kidney cancer patients. So over a decade, that's pretty much all we did. And we had patients come to UCLA from all over the world to be treated in our institution, not in the ICU. We were actually treating patients on the floor, and they would be admitted four times to, to receive this really toxic therapy. And there, as you may or may not know, a response rate somewhere in the area of maybe 15%, and that includes complete responses and minor responses. So we were busy taking care of these patients and giving them treatments that they really, really wanted and there was nothing else to do. And you know, the only positive part was that when IL-2 worked, it worked really well. It, would, it can cause a complete response. Patients could get on their lives. They weren't on therapy you know, for years and years. And they went back to their normal lives. And I can remember clearly one day when we were at work, and you know, I'm busy giving IL-2 to patients and making plans for them to come into the hospital. And there's like some chatter and discussion going around about a phase one study with a drug called Sinitinib and there were some renal cell patients on the study. And although they were having some significant side effects, their tumors were shrinking. And this was really quite outstanding information. Um, their tumors were getting smaller. They were taking an oral agent. They were receiving the medication at home. And that became the beginning of the targeted therapy era. So from like 2005 for the next 10 years, there's just been a lot of drugs approved, oral agents for kidney cancer. And I like to think that kidney cancer was the first disease to actually receive some of these targeted therapies. And I think that, I think that they were. Um, I'm a little biased because uh, it's kind of my special type of um, oncology niche that I really enjoyed working in. And here we are today taking those same targeted therapies. And what are we doing? we are combining them with immunotherapy. Not IL-2, but a different type of immunotherapy, which you're gonna hear more about this evening. So my question that I ask myself and I ask my colleagues where I work is really, what will the next decade look like? Because it's important that we continue to ask these questions so that we can make progress for our patients. So we're gonna jump into our first case study uh, right now and we're going to talk about a patient, Sylvia, 45 years old, presents to her primary care physician, and this is a very typical finding of kidney cancer, with kind of a history of a vague left-sided flank pain, and ultimately she develops gross hematuria. Her past medical history is only significant for hypertension. She's been working full-time, except for some minor discomfort in her flank area. She's an ECOG of zero. 
Some preliminary blood work shows uh, some anemia. Her hemoglobin is 9.8, creatinine within normal limits, and all her other labs are really normal. But the physician orders a CAT scan of her abdomen and pelvis and finds a 6-centimeter left renal mass with a tumor thrombus extending into the inferior vena cava. Because this patient was actually evaluated by a medical oncologist and a surgeon, the medical oncologist said, you know what, I think I better get a chest CT before, you know, we start thinking about surgery for this patient before she, and, and also while she's going to be evaluated by the, by the urologist. So really the next step, steps for this patient were a decision whether or not surgery should be made. And when you see a renal mass, you know, people ask the question, should it be biopsied? And a lot of times, the majority of the times, that tumor just needs to come out. And patients will kind of bypass having a biopsy of that lesion. So you start talking about surgical planning. But important to that is, what is the tissue going to show under the microscope when that tumor is removed? You know, you talk about post-op recovery. And then because this patient was 45 years of age, and it's nothing that we would do pre-op unless the patient kind of brought it up, but we might think about some genet a referral to a genetic counselor for someone of that age. So some key questions, and now I'm going to kind of um, ask our panel some uh, of the questions about this case. And it would be, what pathology and what staging would actually lead into what we call adjuvant therapy discussion for this particular patient? And then another question, and just kind of putting it out there, because some tumors, you know, you, there is systemic therapy before um, actually surgery. So I wanted to ask Dr. McKay, would there be any role for any type of therapy before this patient went to surgery to have her kidney removed? Well, thank you so much for that. So um, to answer the question about, uh, you know, the role of systemic therapy, we tend to call that neoadjuvant treatment so treatment before surgery, that's not a typical standard of care approach um, for patients who have localized renal cell carcinoma. Yes, it's being done in the context of clinical trials, but it's not something that we do routine. However, if the tumor is what I call locally advanced unresectable, or it's, you know, maybe there's... Um, you're losing the fat plane between the psoas muscle, given that these tumors are in the back of the abdomen, or it's really abutting the liver. And, you know, it's, it's really a question of whether it's even resectable to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, in that context, I would, I would label that tumor as locally advanced unresectable and treat it with the best frontline systemic therapy that I have for, as if it was a metastatic um, scenario. But a lot of times when people just present with an isolated renal mass, they have normal organ function, normal creatinine, they don't have bilateral tumors, there isn't an indication for a partial, um, they may go straight to nephrectomy without having a biopsy. But in the context of somebody having, you know, CKD or bilateral tumors, or they have a solitary kidney or a horseshoe kidney, um, knowing um, what is there is really important for surgical planning. And in those scenarios, sometimes a biopsy is um, performed. Um, we're gonna, we'll talk about all of the uh, risk algorithm for determining you know, somebody's risk after they've undergone surgery, because um, that's going to really get into the question of what adjuvant therapy should they be given. It's really all around 
what kind of disease do they have? Do they have clear cell versus non-clear cell? And then what is their risk of recurrence based on pathology, tumor necrosis, grading, and AJCC staging? Great, thank you. We're continuing on with the case study. So patient undergoes a left radical nephrectomy. And what they find is a six centimeter tumor with the tumor thrombus extension to the renal vein and, and vena cava. When they looked at the pathology, um, they, kidney cancer is actually graded to what we call uh, a Furman grade. So this particular patient's kidney cancer was a grade two with a clear cell histology, which, which, which was consistent with renal cell carcinoma. There were no lymph nodes present no sarcomatoid or rhabdoid features, which sometimes can be found on, in the pathology of kidney cancer. She, had, um, she was eventually staged to a T3B-NO, had a very uneventful recovery. So the patient is seen by the urologist post-op, comes back to see the medical oncologist, and at this point in time, and at this era of where we are with kidney cancer, we have to talk about some options for Sylvia after surgery. And the two would be, is this patient just going to be followed? Or is this patient indeed eligible for adjuvant therapy? And again, I asked Dr. McKay for some type of yeah. advice and guidance on this. So this is really a scenario where it's um, shared decision-making with you mm -hmm. and the patient. And a lot of the decision around adjuvant therapy is really dependent on the goals of care for that individual patient and, what, and the values and approach that they have as well. Um, you know, for somebody who has, a, this is, would be a stage three tumor because there's renal vein invasion and there's involvement in the IVC. It's grade two, which is a little bit better from a prognostic standpoint, I would probably put this patient's risk of recurrence at around 50%. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, then you have to talk about, okay, um, if we give you a therapy, what is the likelihood that therapy is going to decrease your risk of recurrence and by, by how much, what are you going to lose with regards to side effects um, coming into the clinic, cost with that therapy versus what are you going to gain? And you could basically present the same options to 10 different patients in the same exact scenario, but given the patient's age, comorbidities, they may each come with a different decision. We know when we do adjuvant therapy, we over-treat um, a handful of patients because while I stated that her risk of recurrence is 50%, her risk of likely being cured without any additional therapy is also 50%. So we're probably going to be over-treating some people with adjuvant therapy and having those individuals incur toxicity that they otherwise would never have had. So it's definitely a shared decision-making um, when, we, when we talk about adjuvant therapy in this context. Thank you. Okay. So I'm going to, we're going to switch uh, speakers now, and Dr. McKay is going to come up and give you an in-depth discussion on adjuvant therapy. Of course. Thank you so much for that introduction, Nancy, and, and really great overview about setting the stage and really over the decades of where we come to where we are now with regards to kidney cancer. So we're going to go through the data. We started to talk about this a little bit with our first case, and, you know, in the present day and era, there are limited options for patients with localized kidney cancer. While nephrectomy can be curative for a subset of patients who have RCC, there is a risk of recurrence despite surgical management, and it really depends on what the prefer patient's performance status is, their grading, their staging, and on average, 
20 to 40 percent, if you kind of take all comers, will experience a local or distant recurrence. Um, right now, um, you know, as of today, there are two FDA-approved therapies for patients who are, um, have high-risk localized RCC that can be given in the adjuvant setting. So we're going to go through some of the data around those two kinds of therapies that can be administered. Before we delve into those treatments, you know, as I stated, um, there's a lot of tools that we can use within the clinic to help us with risk stratification. Now, the most common tool that we use all the time is AJCC staging, but there are others. The uh, UCLA staging system, which is actually quite simple, and there's a calculator online for it, um, includes TNM staging, grade, and ECOG performance status. The outcome that is reported out is overall survival, and you can see there a schematic for patients that are group one, two, three, or four, um, or five, and what their um, survival is based on those parameters. There's others that are out there, the Leibovitch criteria, the MSKCC criteria. Some of the other parameters or models get a little bit more complex, um, but these are different tools that can help you in the clinic. When you meet somebody and you say, okay, what is my risk of recurrence? You can kind of plug and chug their pathology data into these tools. And so, you know, as I stated, um, there are two FDA-approved therapies that are currently uh, used in the clinic. And, um, you know, we've demonstrated historically that TKI-based therapy makes patients live longer when they have metastatic disease. Those drugs have been tested in the localized setting for people with, um, without metastases that just have a local tumor. Um, sunitinib is an FDA-approved therapy based on the results of the S-TRAC trial, but there is toxicity associated with one year of TKI therapy as with sunitinib. IO therapies are now entering into the treatment landscape, but we really need new, new um, uh, strategies for these patients. And it's quite interesting, we're going to talk about this a little bit too, is that it seems like, you know, uh, somebody's uh, side effect profile to uh, uh, a TKI in the adjuvant setting is very different than in the metastatic setting. These are patients who are resected. They don't have symptoms related to their disease. They don't have disease. And so a lot of these patients are healthy um, without necessarily any disease-related symptoms. And so when you're introducing a therapy that can have um, a, a certain specific toxicity profile into it, we have to take that into account. Whereas our metastatic patients, for example, they may feel unwell because of the sheer fact that they have metastases. Um, and so in a lot of the adjuvant trials that looked at TKIs, some of the same dosing parameters that were utilized to um, treat patients with metastatic disease, we could not maintain the same dose intensity in the adjuvant setting. And this is really um, because of the fact that these patients are resected without symptoms related to their disease. Um, and a lot of this is really like proactive management around their AEs to really help prevent patients from developing AEs, ensuring that there's appropriate communication with the patient about toxicities that they may have. But I think really what this drives home is that we really need new therapies beyond just uh, TKI alone. Um, and so balancing that risk-benefit of what are we going to gain with regards to, um, you know, preventing a recurrence. Um, is there a benefit with regards to OS? Um, we haven't really demonstrated that with
TKI therapy versus what is the risk. So toxicity, um, you know, what's the impact on quality of life, what's the cost implications, the inconvenience of treatments. So really, the scale is off balance, um, I find, with TKI therapy. While sunitinib is actually FDA approved in the U.S., it's actually not approved in the um, uh, EU for use. And so there's, um, because of the lack of um, OS data and the toxicity, you're really kind of weighing the scale about um, adjuvant sunitinib use. And so, you know, sunitinib was approved based on the results of the S-TRAC trial for patients who are high risk, um, you know, post-nephrectomy, one year of adjuvant sunitinib. And we sort of talked about sort of this balancing of the scale, you know, preventing disease recurrence, but there's the associated toxicity. You're not necessarily making people live longer, um, but then there's these, um, you know, detriments with regards to toxicity, cost of treatment, inconvenience. And so even though sunitinib was FDA approved in 2017, its uptake within the general medical community and oncologic community was actually quite low because of this off-tilted um, scale. And so these are the results from the S-TRAC trial. This was the first study to show a disease-free um, uh, survival benefit with adjuvant treatment after nephrectomy and RCC. Um, you can see the DFS curve here on your left with a median of 6.8 years um, with sunitinib compared to 5.6 years with placebo. That was statistically significant. The hazard ratio here is 0.76. On the right-hand curve, you can see the overall survival. Um, the curves are nearly overlapping. And there really was no um, benefit with regards to overall survival with um, adjuvant um, sunitinib. Now, this data comes to us in a sea of other data that were actually negative. Um, so the ASHORE trial looked at, um, that was the largest adjuvant trial conducted by um, one of the cooperative groups, looked at sunitinib and serafinib. This was a trial that actually needed, um, that did require a dose reduction of the starting dose of the sunitinib. The SOURCE trial looked at serafinib. Estrac, we talked about PROTECT was negative, ATLAS was negative. Um, Everest still hasn't yet been um, reported, but the only study that was positive out of the sea of these negative trials was the Estrac trial. And you can see that these trials really did differ with regards to whether they allowed patients with clear cell histology or not and the eligibility criteria. You know, um, enriching for the highest risk patients is, is probably a good idea in the context of an adjuvant trial because, you know, those stage one patients um, a larger bulk of them are ultimately going to be cured and not going to require anything um, just with surgery alone. And so, um, you know, after demonstrating that IO therapy or immunotherapy checkpoint inhibitors have improved um, survival for patients with advanced disease, we've now moved those drugs into testing in the localized setting. And here you can see a series of trials that are looking at adjuvant um, immunotherapy. And um, the only trial that includes a neoadjuvant component, which is before surgery component, that black line down the middle is um, uh, the uh, day of surgery, um, was the PROSPER trial being conducted through um, ECOGAC. And you can see that um, there's different durations of therapy. Um, so with Emotion 010, it's one year of uh, atezolizumab. We're going to talk extensively about Keynote 564, which is one year of pembrolizumab. Prosper gave one dose of Nevo prior to surgery and then an additional nine months of therapy after surgery, the Rampart study, and then Checkmate 914, which did um, six months of Nevo-Ipi um, compared to placebo. And you can see the estimated um, uh, enrollments there and, and the primary endpoints for these trials. 
So delving into the Kino uh, uh, 564 data, these data were initially presented at um, ASCO last year during the plenary session. This was a positive trial. Um, the use of adjuvant pembrolizumab compared to placebo demonstrated a significant improvement in disease-free survival for patients that were high-risk post-nephrectomy. Um, patients that were included on this trial included those patients that had um, grade stage 2, grade 4 disease or higher. So they were T3 patients, T4 patients, node-positive patients. This trial even enrolled patients that were what we call M1 NED, which meant that they were metastatic but had all sites of metastases resected. So this trial was a positive trial um, and met its primary um, endpoint of uh, DFS uh, free um, disease-free survival. This is the overall survival data. So still immature. Um, we're still waiting for events. This is the follow-up. Um, so now there's been about 33% of events have been reached. Um, data still immature, but there does seem to be a signal trending towards um, favoring overall survival. The hazard ratio here is 0.54. Um, so everybody is kind of eagerly awaiting to see are these curves going to continue to separate over time, um, suggesting that the adjuvant use of pembrolizumab does, in fact, make, pe make people live longer. <clears throat> and with regards to toxicity, um, we really didn't see any new signal um, in this setting compared to what we know about pembrolizumab in the past. This is very different than the adjuvant use of TKIs, which we really had a struggle using in the adjuvant setting and needed to dose modify. Um, you know, the pembrolizumab toxicity was equivalent to what was seen in, in the metastatic setting. The rates of grade three, four, uh, grade three to five tox were low, 32% um, um, with uh, uh, pembrolizumab. Um, the, there was, I should highlight here, there was no treatment-related deaths on the study, um, and the rates of uh, treatment AEs that led to discontinuation was about 17.6% with adjuvant um, pembrolizumab. So I think on par of what we would expect to see with this agent. And I think um, in November of 2021, the FDA approved um, pembrolizumab for adjuvant treatment for patients with RCC who are at intermediate to high risk of recurrence post-nephrectomy. Um, and you can see uh, that hopefully we're beginning to balance that scale a little bit better with regards to toxicity. Um, it seems like we're preventing recurrences with this therapy. Still need more data on overall survival, um, but a trend, which is good to see. The grade three toxicity is low when we comparatively look at TKI therapy. But then the downsides with IO therapy are, of course, we always worry about immune-related AEs and immune-related AEs that are irreversible or permanent, such as, you know, somebody developing type one you know, diabetes or having a cardiomyopathy develop as a context of their um, immunotherapy. So this is always something that we educate around. Of course, cost to patients and payers, the inconvenience of intravenous therapy as opposed to oral therapy, as all of these therapies thus far are given intravenously. So here we set the stage for adjuvant therapy and also set the stage for nurses to kind of gather around what do we need to do, what do we need to know, and how are we going to make our patients be okay. So there are absolutely a lot of nursing considerations that we have to consider when we're speaking to our patients about adjuvant therapy. The first thing that I always do when, uh, whether, when I see a patient who's about to start any type of treatment, I have to do some type of, of assessment. I have to know what their comorbidity diseases are, and I look at their medication list. That's very telling as to what the patient's being treated for and, and why. It's also very important that we start having some discussions about patient education, about the side effects, 
how long the patients are going to be on this adjuvant therapy, and not to forget to always reinforce what the goals of treatment are. Well, as nurses, we know we have to get insurance approval for these medications, which really should not be a problem because they are approved. So that should not be a big hurdle to get through. But patients want to know, how often do I have to come to the clinic? What will be the follow-up after the treatment? Can I go to work? What will the quality of my life be? Am I going to be at increased risk of infection? And I think this last bullet point is, is really uh, the, 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 probably the most, one of the most truest statements, is many of these patients who undergo nephrectomies, obviously their care has been with their urologist. And that's, for the most part, the relationship that the patient has had with their uh, certain, in kind of their experience with their oncologist. So how are we going to get those patients into medical oncology? And the workflow is very different. Nonetheless, we have to get the patients in to see us, and we have to start thinking about how we're going to get these referrals from urology so that meaningful discussions can be had with patients about whether or not adjuvant therapy um, would be appropriate. And this is, as mentioned earlier, a really wonderful opportunity to have shared decision-making with uh, patients. And on this slide, you're going to see some steps. I'm going to walk through them very quickly with you. But what it really involves is having discussion with the patient and really having an open type of meaningful um, talk and inviting them in to, the, to participating in, dis in their health care decisions. Physicians will present treatment options, evidence-based treatment options, so that the patient can understand, you know, what, um, what treatments are available. Again, providing information on the benefit and risk, as we recently saw on those slides with the, with the, the weighing the risk and the benefits of these therapies. And then the last three is really um, we have to help the patient in evaluating these options because you can only imagine that how much information a patient is getting and they're going home and their you know, brains are just swirling with this and they're wondering what I should do. So it's really important that as nurses, and this is where I think we come in the most, is helping the decision, uh, helping the patient make that decision and evaluating all the options. And there's going to be a lot of questions at this point. They are going to um, have deliberation and they're not going to make their decision right away, but we're going to help them with that and so that they come to the right decision, which really involves their uh, preferences to their health care and what their values are. And then if they decide that they want to go to have this adjuvant therapy, then we are going to assist with the implementation. So that's just kind of an overview of what we mean about shared decision-making with patients, talking with them, inviting them into this discussion, and letting them know what the options are, evidence-based, um, information and that we can, as nurses, can help them to make that decision. So now we're, we've kind of covered adjuvant therapy, and we're now we're going into the treatment of a patient with metastatic disease. And this particular case involves first-line therapy. Patient is Alan, 68 years old, presents to his physician with a feeling of abdominal fullness, a little bit of a bump in his blood pressure and a slight cough. Well, the physician right away 
does a history, maybe draws some blood work, but he en ends up getting a CT of his abdomen. And what they see is an eight centimeter lower pole renal mass with extension to the major veins. Patient undergoes a right radical nephrectomy, clear cell carcinoma, Furman grade four, which is a little bit more um, poorly differentiated type of cells. And his stage ends up being a T3A NO, lymph nodes are negative. Patient recovers well after surgery. And what's interesting, and we see this often in kidney cancer, is sometimes when, we, when the primary tumor is removed, we do see normalization of a patient's blood pressure. So this particular patient did not see a medical oncologist before surgery, but is, um, does his own homework and says, I need to see a medical oncologist and I'd like to do that. Medical oncologist orders a CAT scan of his chest and there are two lesions that are suspicious for metastatic disease. So this patient is classified as what we call indeterminate risk. And the reason for that is because he has metastatic disease within the first year of diagnosis of his kidney cancer. And it turns out he has a hemoglobin less than the um, um, lower limit. So now Dr. McKay is gonna come back and she's gonna talk about systemic therapy for kidney cancer non-adjuvant. Great, thank you for that, Nancy. Um, so we can see here this uh, evolution of all the systemic therapies for patients with advanced renal cell carcinoma and heard a little bit about that and sort of how um, Nancy was really on the front lines and caring for these patients as the treatments have changed over the last several decades. But we've really come a long way from the first FDA-approved drug in 1992, which was high-dose IL-2. Then we entered into the TKI era, um, really from 2005 to 2015. And 2015 was... Um, you know, it was really a game-changing year because that's when nivolumab entered into the clinic for RCC um, in the refractory setting. And, um, you know, a year after nivolumab entered into the clinic, we start seeing some next-generation TKIs enter into the clinic, cabozantinib, lemvatinib, and then, um, you know, entering in in 2018 into the IO combination era. And now we're treating frontline RCC with... IO combinations in the frontline setting as opposed to single agent therapy. And, you know, it's interesting because really, you know, Nancy posed the question of what is the next 10 years uh, going to look like? What's the next decade going to look like? You know, there are currently trials of triplets that are being looked at in frontline, and there are currently trials of doublets that are being looked at in, in second line. And so I do think that we are going to continue to hopefully improve outcomes for patients. And I think if you were to overlay survival onto this uh, schema here, you know, survival was less than a year in the cytokine era. If you were lucky, it was up to a year. For now, our um, advanced patients getting IO doublets, we're approaching median OS for all comer patients. We've taken everybody on the order of four to five years. So we've really made a lot of progress. So what are tools that we can use to help with estimating a patient's risk? And Nancy showed us that case. That individual did have intermediate risk disease based on IMDC risk um, uh, scoring. And you can see the parameters that are used here. We use ECOG performance status, 
time from nephrectomy um, or time from diagnosis to systemic therapy, and then a series of laboratory parameters to help risk stratify patients. And I find this incredibly useful in the clinic because this can help level set when patients ask you, doc, how am I going to do? How, how, how Are things going to you know, go well for me? Like, how am I going to do? And understanding if they're favorable, intermediate, or poor risk, you can actually better guide and better inform that discussion to say, you've got favorable risk disease. You're going to do great. You're going to do great probably for at least a decade. <laughs> you know, so you can help inform that discussion based on a patient's risk. And now we're beginning to actually integrate IMDC risk state risk scoring into how we better select our therapies for any given patient. So now moving into the um, first line approved combinations, um, there's three different types of drugs that are used. Um, Nancy so uh, eloquently talked about the checkpoint inhibitors. There are two that are used in the clinic, CTLA-4 inhibitors, and right now that is um, ipilimumab. And then there are a series of PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitors that are being used. Checkmate 214 of the combination of Nevo-Ipi used two IO treatments together in combination. Um, the primary endpoint for that study was really designed around the intermediate and porous patients. And then there have been a series of IO-VEGF combinations that are FDA-approved. Keynote 426 looked at pembrolexitinib for all risk groups. Avulamabexitinib looked at, um, I'm sorry, Javelin Renal 101 looked at avulamabexitinib for all risk groups. Um, and um, Nivol, uh, Checkmate 90R looked at Nivocabo, and the CLEAR study looked at pembrolizumab plus lenvatinib. And now we have five new approved regimens for frontline treatment for RCC since 2018, which is really just quite remarkable. So just a little bit about that dual checkpoint inhibition that we talked about. Um, so the engagement of PD-1 with PD-L1 and CTLA-4 with its adjoining receptor can actually turn off the breaks within that tumor. Um, so basically the you know, the tumor cell is not normal. It should not be there. And the immune system's job is to recognize foreign material, foreign things that should not be there. However, our, our tumor cells are smart. They have these receptors and checkpoints on their cell surface. They engage with T cells and dendritic cells and actually, you know, basically turn off the blinders so that the T cells can't really see the tumor. And so the dual checkpoint, you know, the ipilimumab basically targets CTLA-4, the nivolumab targets PD-1. By blocking those two negative regulators, the immune cell is actually able to see the tumor and then actually be able to target the tumor. And so the only trial of dual checkpoint inhibition is the uh, keynote, um, I'm sorry, Checkmate 214 study. This was a study that enrolled patients with treatment-naive clear cell RCC with a good performance status. Patients were randomized one-to-one -to, -one to receive the combination of Nevo-Ipi. Nevo-Ipi is given initially every three weeks at four doses, and then after those initial four doses, patients can go on to receive nivolumab. And nivolumab here in the context of this trial was initially given every two weeks, but it can also be given on a four-week regimen um, uh, uh, at a fixed dose as opposed to weight-based dosing. And the control arm here was the historic standard of care, which was sunitinib given on a four-week on, two-week off schedule. The primary endpoint was PFS, OS, ORR, and intermediate and porous patients. And here is the data um, uh, with five years of follow-up from Checkmate 214. And this is really exciting how far we've come. This is the overall survival data. 
Um, so the combination of Nevo-Ipi resulted in a statistically significant improvement in OS um, over um, sunitinib. And this really seemed to be driven by the intermediate and poor risk patients, which is that graph right there in the middle. Now, for the favorable risk patients, I think the story is still evolving over time. You can see that the orange curve, that sunitinib curve, is is um, on top of the um, uh, uh, blue um, uh, Nevo-Ipi curve. So it seems like the favorable risk patients seem to do better with a TKI, um, but then um, over time, um, you know, potentially, uh, you know, you could see the curves crossing there later on. Um, with regards to PFS, I think really here what is what we really need to highlight is we're beginning to see a flattening of the PFS curve right around 30 months. Um, you see it flattening um, and really 30% of patients remain disease-free and in some scenarios also treatment-free because if they had toxicity, that treatment may have been discontinued. And then, um, you know, they haven't yet progressed, so they're off treatment without progressive disease, which is always a great thing. Um, but you see that flattening of the PFS curve in the intent-to-treat um, graph and also in the intermediate-to-porous graph. And so here are the response rates, highlighting the ORR is around 40%, the complete response rate around 12%, which is really exciting um, with this combination. So then we look at the incidence of treatment-related AEs. They do seem to decrease over time. What we're looking at here is within these chunks of time, so within the first six months, what's the likelihood of an AE? Within the next six to 12 months, what's the likelihood of an AE? So it's really when you're given drugs in combination with the Nevo-Ipi that you're, beginning, you're seeing that tox, but once the Ipi is out of the picture, the likelihood of the toxicity actually decreases over time. There is also rationale for the combination of IO with VEGF. Um, you know, VEGF is immunosuppressive within that tumor microbe environment, and blocking it can actually potentially um, result in synergy between a VEGF inhibitor and an IO agent. And there have been a series of trials that we already kind of reviewed that looked at IO-VEGF combinations compared to sininib. So this is the general schema for those four trials that I previously talked to you about. So again, newly diagnosed patients with clear cell RCC being enrolled, randomized one-to-one -to, -one to the IO-VEGF combo compared to sininib, which was the historic standard of care. This is the data from Keynote 426, which demonstrated that the combination of pembrolizumab plus excitinib resulted in a statistically significant improvement in overall survival and also PFS. The objective response rates with TKI-IO therapies is higher than with IO-IO alone. Response rate here is on the order of 60%, CR rate around 10%. Um, also, the PFS tends to be longer with IO um, than Jeff compared to IO, uh, IO alone. Um, this is the data from uh, long-term follow-up from Checkmate 9ER. Again, similar message, improvement in PFS and OS with the combination of Nevo-Cabo versus Sunitinib. I will point out that the Cabo-Zantinib dosing in the context of this study is different than what we use in monotherapy dosing. So with monotherapy dosing, it's at 60 milligrams given once daily. Um, when used in combination with nivolumab, the dosing of Cabo-Zantinib is at 40 milligrams. And then finally, um, the CLEAR study, which looked at pembrolizumab um, plus lemvatinib versus sunitinib, and this study did also meet its primary endpoint, improvement in PFS and also improvement in OS. We are seeing the longest PFS with this combination, um, nearly two years uh, PFS with uh, uh, LEN-PEM compared to um, sunitinib and what was seen in the other studies. 
So again, we're kind of balancing the dual, uh, what are the pros and cons of um, IOTKI versus IOIO? You know, um, I think when I think about the pros of therapy for, um, you know, uh, IOTKI, it's uh, not to say you're playing the short game, but I tend to think that IOIO, I'm playing the long game. What is really great about that regimen is the durability of the response and that tail on the curve of that 30% of patients at five, five years potentially being you know, progression-free, and in some scenarios, we don't like to say it, potentially even cured of their disease. But the primary PD rate is about 20% with that regimen. There's a risk of immune-related AEs that needs to be think thought about, but then when you get them on their maintenance NEVO, they're okay. But then with IOTKIs, the pros are the response rates up front are initially pretty high. The PFS is pretty high initially, but there's a question about the durability of the regimen. Then you also have to think about toxicity because patients stay on that TKI for long term. So this is sort of the things to kind of balance with regards to side effects, um, uh, pros and cons of these uh, regimens. Well, thank you. Um, I think you can really see and hear the enthusiasm in Dr. McKay's when she presents this data. I mean, it is so significant for patients with advanced kidney cancer, and there are so many treatments, and it's just uh, it, it's good to hear. Okay. After all that, we have a decision to make. What regimen was selected for Allen? And an IO and a TKI was actually selected. And now I'm going to um, actually ask the, our panel some questions about this because my experience, and I'm sure your experience as well, is people will come up and say, how did you pick that regimen? What factors did you consider when you were making that decision? So let, let's start with that, and I think it's a good uh, place to begin this discussion. You want to start? Okay. So I think aside from a lot of the things that Dr. McKay already pointed out with regards to the pros and cons of the various regimens, I think some of the things we think about are comorbidities, what medications they're already on. So for example, we know that TKIs, one of the major side effects we see is hypertension. So is this a patient that's already on multiple antihypertensive agents? Do we need to really consider that before we move forward with that regimen? Now, of course, ultimately, we're going to do what makes the most sense clinically for the patient, um, and we can manage those things. That's the beauty of that is hypertension. We can manage that. We can dose reduce. We have some um, ability to adjust dosing when we're talking about an oral um, TKI, whereas with IO, IO regimens, we are... Um, it, it's fixed dosing. And so, yes, we can adjust the schedules, but we can't necessarily adjust the dose. So that's one yeah. thing to start with. Yeah, I mean, I think when I have a patient before me, again, I, I like to think of it as the short game, the short game and the long game, because, you know, the first thing is sort of assessing the efficacy of that regimen and which is going to set the patient up for success in the long, the, you know, in short term and in the long term. And there are some patients that need immediate, not to say need immediate treatment, but um, you really got to get that tumor in check up front. Um, you've got to... Uh, you know, they don't necessarily have, they may not necessarily have a second shot at getting the tumor in check. You really want to optim, you know, you know, optimize their chance right up front. 
And in those scenarios, I tend to lean towards an IO TKI. Maybe it's patients who have you know, liver metastases. Um, maybe it's patients who may have bone metastases where you're thinking about a drug like cabozantinib or nevocabo in that regimen. Um, or somebody's like very symptomatic from their disease that they really need that disease control up front. So I think from an efficacy standpoint, those are the things that come into check. But I think as we kind of integrate, you know, our multidisciplinary team and our nursing team thinking about toxicity and what the patient has to endure, like the IV therapies, you know, not to say they're they're easy. They each have their pros and the cons. They're coming into clinic. They don't have to worry about taking in oral pills. Once you get them through the IPI, they're just once a month Nevo. But then there's the flip of the TKIs with the TKI toxicity and then just being able to take an oral med. So it's really that shared decision-making is so important, you know? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Um, I, some of these questions I think we're probably going to talk about later when we talk mm-hmm. about... Um, some of the side effects. So I think we're going to just kind of move on with um, our program. So last but not least, and uh, we're going to hear from Archana. And you just heard from her a few seconds ago, but without a formal introduction. And she actually works with Dr. McKay at um, University of California, San Diego, in the Morris Cancer Center. And Together, they're a team seeing kidney cancer patients, making all these decisions together, and taking care of the patients. So we're going to hear some nursing strategies about delivering this type of treatment and how to managing some of the side effects. Thank you. Thank you. Great. So we started to talk a little bit about this, but... Um, you know, when we start to think about what are the perspectives, what are the things that we need to think about um, when we're making the decision about IO combinations versus IO and TKI. When we think about immune checkpoint inhibition um, drugs, they're, you know, they're given IV. Um, their dosing schedules we can adjust with that, that works best for the patient's lifestyle. I'm going on a trip. Can I shift my treatment by two days? No problem. Um, you know, I think with the, the oral TKIs, we're very focused on monitoring oral adherence. Um, and then, of course, thinking about if we're doing an IO and a TKI, the combination, there's a lot of toxicities that are going to overlap. And some of, a lot of what we're doing as nurses, as APPs, is, is really trying to tease out, well, what, what, which drug is it? And, and, um, and pulling that apart. Um, with the oral drugs, as I mentioned earlier, um, we have the ability to dose adjust. So if someone's having significant toxicity, we can dose reduce, we can modify, we can skip days, we can hold. The short, the, the half-life um, of the drug is shorter, obviously, than giving an intravenous drug, and so we have the ability to hold drug and have them recover from some of the toxicity. Um, of course, immune checkpoint inhibitors come with um, a very unique set of AEs um, that uh, that we need to manage. And um, I think with either of these options, IO or oral, um, IO, IV medications or oral, we can utilize tools and calendars to help patients with dosing. So when we talk about the spectrum of AEs, and we, we alluded to this earlier, there's a lot of overlapping toxicity. Some of the most common ones are listed here. Um, and when we're spending time talking and educating patients, consenting patients for these therapies, we really have to talk about 
kind of what is most common, and I spend a lot of time in clinic doing that. What are the most common things that you're going to see? And then here are all of the other things. Um, so these are the ones that we talk the most about and see the most of. Our GI, um, GI events, specifically diarrhea or nausea, vomiting, hepatitis, um, endocrinopathies or fatigue, and then dermatologic toxicities. So, um, of course, in managing fatigue, this is just kind of a sample of, of opportunities to provide support to your patients and what are the things that they can do on their end to really, um, you know, help be successful while they're on this therapy. And, um, of course, if they're, they have an endocrinopathy, we're managing that and we're, you know, titrating their medications as needed, but assuming that's all normal, you know, these are other things that they can do, you know, staying as active as they can be, um, trying to maintain some normalcy, some normal routine for themselves, but also recognizing that occasionally you do need to take breaks and that's okay. And sometimes it's just sitting in a clinic room with a patient telling them it's okay if you need to take a nap today, you know, like those things are um, expected on some of these therapies. But of course, also recognizing that they need to, and really empowering them to call us and let us know if something just doesn't seem right. If this is really a departure from your normal, we want to hear from you and empowering them and letting them know it's okay to call us. Um, and there are, of course, other medical management, um, medical uh, therapies that we can do, such as methylphenidate. So this is sort of a recap of what we what we talked about on a prior slide, which is that these are some of the most common um, immune checkpoint-specific toxicities that we see. So GI toxicities, um, dermatologic, so rash, pruritus, um, endocrinopathies, specifically hypothyroid, um, and pneumonitis. So this is a really great slide, and I think because it it's it's actually something that sometimes I show patients to just explain and try to visually show them how the AEs associated with immune checkpoint inhibition can really be different. So the key take-homes from a slide like this to me is that it can happen really at any time, but it's not typically right in the beginning, right? It's somewhere around week four, week six, that we really start to see symptoms occur. And so maybe the first dose goes great, and then they come in for cycle two or cycle three of ipinevo, and all of a sudden now is when they're starting to see toxicity. So I think this is a really important take-home point when you're educating patients, um, is to talk to them about how this really could happen at week four, week six, which is when we start to see some of the diarrhea, colitis um, symptoms happening, but it could also happen week 30. It could happen 10 cycles in, 12 cycles in. So I think this is a really great take-home slide. This is a general schema of AE, immune-related AE management. So again, this is, this is really more of a broad um, slide to kind of give you an idea of grading of toxicities, number one, and two, sort of how we generally manage. Now, of course, depending on the toxicity, this grading um, schema changes, um, but there are a lot of really great resources um, for these IRE uh, management guidelines, IRAE, excuse me, management guidelines through ASCO and NCCN, um, SIDSI, ESMO, they're all referenced there at the bottom of the page, but this is a general schema. So for grade one toxicities, Generally, they're minimal, um, and we can typically kind of treat through those. There are exceptions to that. Um, some of the neurologic toxicities, hematologic or cardiac toxicities, certainly are an exception to that. Grade two, this is where we start to consider whether or not we need to hold therapy. Um, um, 
And, you know, this is where, again, there's some variability depending on the toxicity that we're talking about. Grade three and four, these are our severe life-threatening toxicities. These are the toxicities where patients, they're getting admitted. They're getting managed with a multidisciplinary team. We have specialists involved. Um, and grade four toxicity specifically to point out that generally permanent discontinuation of immune checkpoint inhibition happens. So this is, um, you know, a really important point to, to communicate to patients that early detection and timely recognition of symptoms and side effects is critical when you're managing immune-related toxicities. Um, you know, this really requires a multidisciplinary team from nursing to physicians, APPs, other specialties, GI, endocrine, um, ophthalmology. I mean, we really collaborate very closely um, with a whole variety of a multidisciplinary team. Um, so just to kind of move through some more specifics in terms of managing immune-related AEs, we'll start with diarrhea and colitis, so some of the GI toxicities that we see. And I'll kind of walk you through a little bit of how we would think about this, right? So a patient calls the clinic. You know, typically we know that the colitis and diarrhea, if you remember back to that graph that I showed earlier, the onset is somewhere between, you know, three days, 10 weeks, but even months of patients being on an immune checkpoint inhibitor. So the first thing, you know, you, you get a phone call from a patient, they say, I'm having diarrhea. I think one of the toughest things to do is to tease that out. Well, so what do you mean? Tell me, what is your baseline? What, is, what does it look like on a normal day for you? And how far is this off from your baseline? Let's talk about what foods you're eating. Are you, are you drinking? Are you able to keep food down? I mean, asking some of these very critical questions is going to help guide kind of your next steps in managing. If they're having you know, two loose stools in a day, and their baseline is one loose stool in a day, you're less worried about them. If there's someone who's like, I have a bowel movement every other day, and all of a sudden now they're at four or five in a day, you're pretty concerned. So this is really a critical role for the triage nurse, for the frontline staff that's talking to the patient, um, is to tease that out. So we really think about kind of the onset, think about other things that could be contributing to the diarrhea, what other medications are they on, what foods are they eating. So really calculating that out in a 24-hour period. Do they have mucus? Do they have blood in their stool? And really the next step might be if you're concerned about them getting a, get, getting a CT scan. We also consider evaluation of the stool for C. diff, for um, other bacterial, you know, bacterial culture, ONP, um, and then we can think about, you know, so what do we do? We really are able to now grade this, um, these symptoms and then kind of think about what next. So if we're really talking about grade one, um, you know, let's, let's hold the immune checkpoint inhibitor if we're worried. Um, think about antidiarrheals, antispasmodics. Um, if we're talking about grade two, typically this is where we're going to hold. The risk of, of not treating or not holding for a patient who has colitis can be severe. It can be life-threatening. The risk is really perforation, sepsis. So this is a very serious um, AE to be paying close attention to. And of course, if we're talking about grade two to grade four, um, AEs associated with colitis, um, the therapy is high-dose prednisone, um, and if they're refractory to prednisone, then we're talking about the use of infliximab. Moving on to dermatologic AEs, this is a very common side effect that we see with immune checkpoint inhibitors. Um, 
many times can present as a rash, it can present as no rash, but just itchiness. So it can present in many different ways, which is why that picture is there to show you that there's just quite a variety of rashes that you can see. Um, it can show up as psoriasis or eczema flares, um, lichenoid deposits, um, vitiligo, but really important to check all mucous membranes. I recall a patient that Dr. McKay and I share that um, developed mucositis, pretty significant mucositis on immune checkpoint inhibitors, which really we hadn't seen much of before, but we put him on steroid and, and it really helped. And he was able to maintain a low dose of steroid while on, on his therapy for a prolonged period of time. So just thinking about all mucous membranes when we think about dermatologic. Um, but think about the body surface area that's exposed, um, or that's affected, excuse me, and, um, and then that helps you guide your therapy, how much, you know, is it grade one, is it just less than 10% of their BSA, or grade two or three. Typically, this is a very easily managed with oral antihistamines, topical steroids, um, and most patients are able to manage this and stay on therapy, and this really does not warrant holding therapy for a grade one, which if you recall, um, I mentioned there are some AEs that we hold therapy for. Um, grade two, we can start to consider holding the therapy depending on the surface area that's covered. Um, topical steroids, again, oral antihistamines, topical emollients, and then grade three and four, that's where we consider holding immune checkpoint. Um, hepatic AEs are, are also, this is a really challenging one. And when we start to think about overlapping toxicities, this is, this is another big one. Um, so, both TKIs and IO can cause hepatitis. And so we as nurses, as physicians, as healthcare professionals have to really think about how are we going to tease out the two and how do we manage these. So the first step I think about when we see if someone comes in LFT elevation, you know, you really want to start thinking about what are the other potential causes. Let's look at their med list. Are they on Tylenol? Are they um, drinking alcohol? Are they, uh, could this be a viral hepatitis? Could there be some other reason that this patient's LFTs are elevated? You start there. Then you kind of think about the grading. Where are we? Is this, is this mild? Is this grade one elevation? Now, if they're on an IO and TKI combination, which I, I sort of alluded to this earlier, you can stop the TKI as sort of the first line. And I'll get into this on the next slide. But you can stop the TKI, has a shorter half-life, obviously, than if they just got their immunotherapy two days ago, um, and recheck their LFTs. And so many times we'll bring patients back. This is something we'll check them twice a week. We'll, want, we'll monitor their trend. Um, but you really want to kind of tease out, make sure you understand what the drugs are, eliminate any potential drugs that could be causing this. So when we think about grade one, um, you know, here it says, you know, three times upper limit of normal. Obviously, the assay varies depending on which lab is, is utilized, but this is roughly around um, 120 if the upper limit is 40, um, just to give you an idea of numbers of AST or ALT. Um, so for grade one, you could continue um, and then just frequently monitor. Um, and then if you're grade two or grade three, this is often a situation where we might delay or hold. If it's an IO-IO combination, we may just hold therapy and trend out their LFTs, repeat them again in a couple of days, see which direction they're going, and you can always delay therapy and resume. Um, if it's grade three or four, we really are holding therapy at this point. We're increasing the monitoring every one to two days. 
Many times these patients are getting admitted because they need uh, IV, um, high-dose steroids, uh, methylpred, 1 to 2 milligram mg per kg per day. Um, and again, another situation where a multidisciplinary approach is really critical, so we're often involving our hepatology colleagues to help manage this. So when we are talking about IO and TKI combinations, we understand that there's two very different mechanisms of actions. Um, however, the toxicities are overlapping. And it's, it's really critical to tease out, is this the IO or is this the TKI? And like I said earlier, you can hold the TKI, um, recheck their blood work, see if you're seeing a trend in the right direction, and then it sort of gives you a clue into which drug is the causative agent. But you can see the overlapping toxicities include rash, diarrhea, hepatitis, endocrinopathies. Um, there's neurologic um, uh, toxicity potentially as well. With the TKIs, we really see more of the hypertension, the taste changes, stomatitis, hand-foot syndrome, cytopenias. Um, so just to kind of summarize everything we've talked about so far, um, you know, with oral TKIs, we're really focusing a lot of our attention on paying attention to oral adherence, um, addressing the spectrum of AEs, recognizing that many of them do overlap with um, the, IO the IO therapies. Um, the immunotherapy uh, drugs are all given intravenously. We're not dose adjusting, but we can adjust the schedule. Uh, to make it work for the patient, and really understanding the unique features between the combination of IO and TKI. There are a lot of really great tools available to patients that we can provide them about um, diarrhea uh, monitoring, um, food to avoid when you're having diarrhea, antiemetic regimens that we can utilize, um, which many of you are well-versed in. And of course, talking about clinical trial options for patients. There's great support groups available. Um, and uh, I think the last point would really be just encouraging patients to call, particularly in, um, with, with these types of drugs, that early detection is important and giving them the opportunity to call and reach out from, with any symptom that's a departure from their normal. And of course, integrating the multidisciplinary team. So working closely with um, subspecialists, dermatology, endocrinology, um, you know, connections with your emergency department, your infusion center if somebody needs IV hydration, um, and then encouraging your patients and um, being well aware of the AEs. This is another great tool, ONS wallet card for immunotherapy that we can give patients. Um, you know, we tell our patients often if they're, they, many patients live far away because, and they want to come and see Dr. McKay. And so, you know, if they end up having a toxicity at a local institution, uh, another hospital outside of UCSD, we tell them to call us, let them know you're on immunotherapy, call Dr. McKay or call your team because we want to know what's going on. And I'll hand it back over to Nancy. Great. Thank you. Mm -hmm. That was great. Um, we had some. We have some questions that came in, and I think they're interesting, and I think that we should answer them. Okay. So the first one. Across the country, there is a lot of variability on how APPs and MDs practice. How does the MD and NP work together at your practice? and how autonomous is the NP? 
Does the APP decide on dose holds, dose reductions, and discontinuations? <laughs> I love that question. Yeah, it's like hot off the press. I I we, have to, we have to talk about this. You can start. You can start. So <laughs> we actually have an amazing relationship. Archana is just so great. And I do think that that relationship is built on trust and also, um, you know, when we first started out in the clinic together, it was actually a lot of co-management and sort of like, okay, let's learn this process together. Let's, you know, learn about, and as a new therapy sort of comes around, it's always sort of understanding, okay, what are the nuances of that therapy? But actually, you know, once you've sort of gone through and, um, you know, understand sort of uh, exactly how the patient, not to say how they're supposed to be managed, but a lot of the decisions around no, you, this is how we manage your diarrhea, or this is how we manage hypothyroidism, or this is how we do a workup for, you know, uh, hypophysitis. That, not to say that that's not a direct oncologic thing. It's, it's not, you know, that is certainly within the scope and even beyond for an APP to do and focus. So Archana actually runs an independent clinic. She sees patients independently. Um, she'll do AE management independently. She she was actually a part of a large initiative at our institution to allow for APP signing of chemotherapy orders. Not necessarily the, the first day, cycle one, day one, but actually subsequent visits um, for patients who don't need any dose modification at all that can, you know, there's treatment parameters that are within the order set, but that's within the scope of practice for APPs. Mm -hmm. And so I think for all of us to be successful, um, it is important for everybody to practice to the top of their license. But for that relationship to be um, a great relationship, I think it's built on trust and it's built on understanding the scientific and um, medical rationale for each approach and making sure that there's appropriate training there. So right. we wouldn't expect somebody from the floodgates to come onto our team all of a sudden new and just be, be expected to be able to do it totally on their own. It's going to take a lot of mentorship and helping build that person up. And then, you know, they can soar and you can trust that they will do that. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, completely echo everything Dr. McKay said. Um, you know, I think it's taken years of building that relationship. And um, I think it's an openness an understanding of learning different styles because I work with many different oncologists and I think everyone practices a little bit differently. But um, having that openness, being willing to learn, being excited about it first. And second of all, I think Dr. McKay really helps guide that initial step, that initial treatment choice. And, um, and then after that, I think I've learned over time how to manage all of these AEs. And, and there are situations, not infrequently, where we talk about it together. What do you think we should do? And it becomes this very amazing collaborative discussion where we're both bouncing ideas off of each other. And it really, um, I think it enhances the patient's care because you're really getting so many different people, so many different perspectives, the nurse, us, and her. So it, it's, it's really awesome. amazing. It's really amazing how it works. I, I tell patients she's like my, my right arm, left arm, and right leg. <laughs> and if I didn't have Arjuna, I would be hobbling around everywhere. <laughs> yeah. So she's just, and it takes, you know, it takes, it takes a village. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's great. Thank you very mm -hmm. much. 
We have other questions, but we're going to get to them later because they're, they're just great questions that I, by looking at the iPad. Okay, so our patient who's been on the therapy calls the office with complaints of nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. So what are the next steps? Do you say, oh, well, I think we're just going to watch this for a little bit. Do we hold the drug, office visit? Do we send the patient to the emergency room or draw blood? So this is going to be, you know, we, we kind of alluded to some of this. Um, so I think some of the questions would be, you know, what would you do in your practice? And, and also, I think, is there an infrastructure that helps within your practice that if it was after 5 o'clock, what would the patient, how would they be managed? Mm -hmm. So I can start. I mean, I think our, we have an amazing nurse that we work with as well who's sort of our front line. She triages patients, um, you know, during the, you know, Monday through Friday till, you know, five or six. I mean, she's there even later. Than that. <laughs> um, but we also have an on-call fellow that's available. So we always educate patients up front when we're consenting them for therapy. If anything comes up, whether it's a holiday night or weekend, here's the on-call emergency number. Put it in your cell phone. So um, to speak to the structure, I think the first thing is understanding they have some nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. Well, tell me a little bit more about that. How much diarrhea are you having in a 24-hour period? Are you eating and drinking? Are you able to keep anything down? Um, I think, you know, we would kind of start teasing some of that out. Um, and then we can start to think about what would be the next steps. We're really lucky. We've got an infusion center on site. If it's something that seems grade one, we might think about, well, should we bring them in for labs and hydration? Um, you know, and then check back in a couple of days. And, you know, Jane is, our nurse is, is very involved and, or, or I would see them in clinic. Can I see you urgently today? So those are some of the opportunities that we have. We have same day add-on opportunities. We have infusion visit opportunities, labs on site. So those things help. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, I think I'm just realizing we've, we've been talking all about grading, 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 but we mm -hmm. haven't actually stepped back to tell you what grading is. I think we are so embedded in research sometimes. So we use CTCAE grading, which is a lot of times what's used in the context of clinical trials. And some people who are not necessarily doing clinical trials on a day-to-day -day basis may not necessarily know what that is, but CTCAE grading basically helps take a symptom that any given patient may have and grade it based on severity to help understand what do I need to do and how aggressive I need to be. And so you guys can actually um, Google that on the internet, like type in CTCAE grading. Mm -hmm. I think the most recent version is version five. Mm -hmm. And you can put in any lab, any symptom, and it can tell you sort of like one, two, like grade one is sort of things that you would not necessarily do a dose hold for. You know, grade two, generally those don't necessarily need to go into the hospital, but generally for three, four, um, you know, talks, you're admitting them into the hospital or doing something more severe, getting other consultants in place. Uh, you know, I know we talked a little bit about kind of referring to the NCCN guidelines. The NCCN guidelines are great because they actually have an entire chapter on AE management, um, immune-related AE management. And you can literally go in and kind of work through those algorithms if you're not really sure what to do, and it'll help with, you know, diagnostic ordering and different kinds of things. So I just wanted to level set because I'm realizing maybe some of you all may not know what that is. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, look, what a timeless slide. We were just talking about some of these triage tools for nurses um, that really do help identify um, what the problem is. And, and, and they have logarithms so that they can really help the patient in a step-by-step -step way 
to identify what the problem is and, and how to treat it. And again, the CTCAE right there it is. <laughs> right up on the slide and the NCCN guidelines. And these are really helpful to help follow some of the um, side effects that these patients um, do experience. Okay, moving forward, um, Allen's disease has progressed after two prior systemic therapies. Now we're kind of getting into the refractory setting um, for kidney cancer. So what other treatment options would this patient have at this point in time? So I think a lot of uh, what we do next is going to depend on what the patient has received. So I want to talk to you a little bit about Tavazinib. It's a new VEGF TKI that was actually recently FDA approved. Um, it has a potent inhibitor of VEGF, um, and based on the results of the uh, TIVO3 trial, resulted in a statistically significant improvement in PFS over serafinib. And this trial was really done in people who were treatment refractory. They had seen multiple prior lines of therapy, um, two or more greater lines of systemic therapy, and this drug demonstrated an objective response rate of 23% compared to 11% with serafinib. And you can see here the treatment-related um, AEs. There's hypertension, um, asthenia, fatigue, some diarrhea, some PPE, um, uh, you know, compared to serafinib. Honestly, tavazinib is one of the easiest TKIs to use in the, in the clinic with regards to tolerance on part of the patient. And I will just highlight, you know, it's just the important consideration around dosing because in the New England publication for the, for the drug, you know, the dosing that is, that is written in there is at 1.5 milligrams of the tavazinib um, hydrochloride which is an equivalent of 1.34 milligrams of tavazinib itself. So when you're doing dosing and prescribing, the dose is a little bit funny. It's, it's a 1.34 milligram dose. And then when you do a dose reduction, the first dose reduction is at 0 0.89. So it's not your standard you know, things that are increments of 5 or 10 that we're typically used to. But this is a very active agent for treatment refractory disease. The other drug that I think is worthwhile highlighting, it's actually already FDA approved for von Hippel-Lindau syndrome. That's a hereditary form of um, kidney cancer. Um, but we know that VHL alterations can occur in up to 90% of patients with sporadic clear cell RCC. Um, they, uh, uh, you know, loss of, uh, of the VHL protein function results in constitutive activation of HIF2-alpha, and belzutivan basically blocks that interaction. And here is the data that was presented from a phase 1-2 trial of belzutivan demonstrating an objective response rate of 25% in this heavily pretreated population, and this drug is now being tested in a large phase 3 trial that's completed accrual in the refractory setting. And so this may be another kid on the block that may soon be entering into the more broad treatment landscape for RCC, though we need to kind of see what the data has to show. All right. I'm going to summarize. We have a few more slides before the program is over. And I think my panel, they did an outstanding job of giving you a lot of information, scientific evidence for the clinical trials, and some fantastic information on the nursing care of these patients. So first thing is we have to monitor these patients closely for potential immune-related adverse events. We have to ask patients about the symptoms that they're having. They're, are they short of breath? Could be a sign of inflammation of the lung. Are they having diarrhea? Possibly colitis. It's important to note that most of these serious AEs that were mentioned tonight probably only occur in maybe less than 10% of the patients. But nonetheless, when they do occur, 
they can be life-threatening. And you just can't have a patient assume, oh, well, I'm not part of that 10%, I'm not going to call the physician. And the more common AEs that we can take care of early on, the better chance that the patient will have uh, staying on the therapy. So I hope we've tried to really uh, hammer tonight that the nurse's role has, the nurse definitely has a role in the care of patients with kidney cancer, understanding new mechanism of actions of these agents, support and education for patients on TKIs or immunotherapy, and the vigilance and education that is required when taking care of these patients. We have to educate the patients and their caregivers about the therapies, about how these medications work, the possible adverse events. And none of us has used the word tonight chemotherapy, simply because these agents are not chemotherapy. And it, we get asked all the time, and I'm sure you do too, you know, what about the chemotherapy that I'm giving? And we go, uh-uh-uh. First thing is, this is not chemotherapy. So the mechanism of action, how we manage the side effects is completely different. And also, I think you've also learned about the overlap in the side effects. And that, no question, is a big challenge. But with you know, persevering and you know, listening to the patients and the more experience you have, it will become kind of like an art. Uh, you'll kind of know which is the TKI and which is the immunotherapy causing the discomfort. And also encourage your patients to really report adverse events as soon as possible rather than later. And just a, a couple words about clinical trials. There is no way that we would be where we are today without the participation of patients in clinical trials. All the trials that Dr. McKay shared with you are because of patients that signed consent forms and agreed to voluntarily participate in clinical trials. All of us try to create a culture where uh, we can talk about a clinical trial with patients in an atmosphere that provides information, uh, that we take our time when we're uh, talking about a clinical trial so that we can adequately explain it and the patient doesn't feel that they are just being, oh, sign the paper, let's get this um, you know, going. Now, some patients will say to you, sure, I'll sign. Not only can it help me, but maybe I can help somebody else. So there's kind of two benefits that are going on. But the important thing that we always tell our patients is that 100% they are in control of if, if and when they decide to participate on a clinical trial. And by that, we mean that at any time they want to stop participation, it is entirely up to them, and they know that we will continue to take care of, of them on whatever treatment uh, comes their way. And it's so important that we have these conversations about clinical trials, because if we're going to move the clock forward into that next decade of what are the next treatments going to be for kidney cancer, the only way to do it is uh, participation in a, in a trial. And just some of the, uh, the facts surrounding this, and you may or may not know, but 11% of sites, of clinical trial sites, actually fail to enroll a single patient. So in other words, you spend all this time and effort in getting a study open, and some of them, 11% uh, of, the, of these sites, don't even put a patient on, a, on the trial. Close to 40% do not even meet their enrollment goals. And when you ask patients, do they understand what a clinical trial is, they really don't know what, what it's all about. 
and to this day and I've been doing this a long long time they still use the word I don't want to be treated as a guinea pig and they're not I mean some of the finest care is delivered to patients on a clinical trial and and by that I mean they are followed very closely uh, they are monitored you know and and sometimes people think they we kind of uh, oversee them a little bit too much but it, it's not that way at all um, it's, it's just that they're receiving investigational medications and we have to do due diligence to make sure that they're safe so sometimes and it's not common patients will say well I never even had a doctor talk to me about a potential of a clinical trial so it's it's important that we create an atmosphere and and make sure that our the, the culture in which we work is open to having discussions about clinical trials for patients in summary uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors have definitely showed progress for patients um, not only in the adjuvant setting but for patients with advanced disease and we continue to you know try to you know move forward with those patients who have refractory disease and trying new molecules to see if we can't get control of their cancer in some response and there's no question in my mind that nursing professions are essential in the care of the patient with any type of cancer but of course um, whether we're giving standard of care therapies or, or supporting clinical research it's really the, the nurse that I feel kind of moves the clock um, on these patients and do we have time for questions great because we have some wonderful mm -hmm. questions all right okay um, here's one what do you think patients value most in their treatment regimen so I think that that differ that differs <laughs> from patient to patient you know I think that um, you know your 50 year old who comes in or 40 year old that comes in with metastatic disease probably has different goals than your 86 year old who comes in with metastatic disease so I think it behooves us to understand what they value and not assume that we know what they value mm -hmm. um, because it's different for every single patient I know a lot of cancer centers now have advanced care planning initiatives that even start from the day somebody is diagnosed with cancer regardless of you know how low of a stage it may be right okay uh, do patients have the opportunity to go on a treatment holiday and still get benefit very good question so mm -hmm. yes 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 I mean mm -hmm. I think that when we have patients on therapy the ultimate goal is not to blast away at the highest dose possible because at the end of the day that is gonna hurt in the long run and when you actually add up the amount of drug they would have received it it's likely lower than if you were at a slightly lower dose that patients can maintain for a longer time so um, for immunotherapy for example there's this concept of treatment free survival for patients who have um, toxicity in the context of receiving IO therapy it's not uncommon that we hold treatment or sometimes we discontinue treatment and monitor them off of any therapy if they're not progressing um, with TKIs as well it's very common to take a hold if the, the you know chronic grade 2 diarrhea is some of the most debilitating um, you know AE that sometimes patients can have and so to talk to them about that and give them encouragement and certainly Archana I'd love to hear your thoughts around it too because I think Archana is amazing at doing this in the clinic of just educating patients around that but we do it all the time yeah I mean I think one of the 
situations that I think comes up not infrequently now that we've had patients on immunotherapy for a prolonged period of time is at the two-year mark, we sort of have this conversation. Like, mm-hmm. do we keep going or do we give you a break? What do your scans look like? Let's talk about this. And it's a moment of shared decision-making. Some patients say, I don't want to stop therapy. I'm, I'm too scared. I, I just want to keep going. And others are like, well, let's see. We can, we're going to continue to follow you every three months with scans. But it, it's certainly a conversation we have not infrequently now that we have mm-hmm. a lot of I.O. around. Know, it's, it's just amazing that uh, patients, what they bring to these conversations, because like you said, they're so individual. Mm-hmm. And some patients are willing to take the risk and be mm-hmm. comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. And others say, not happening. Mm-hmm. Okay, we have to... We have to address this. Um, does the use of steroids affect efficacy of immunotherapy? Can you use low-dose steroids to address the immune reactions and keep the patient on treatment? So that's a very good question. And where I go to is all the clinical trials. So in all the clinical trials that demonstrated all of these efficacious results where patients were living longer, the response rates were what they were, Toxicity was treated with steroids. Um, so all the, all the patients, if they had severe enough toxicity, they received steroids. The rates of steroid use on these trials ranged on the order of about high-dose steroids, meaning prednisone of 40 or higher equivalent, around 30%. So, um, you know, I would not, 30 to 40% in some content. So if patients need it, I would give it to them. <laughs> right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we get, we get asked that a lot. Okay. Um, someone wants to know about more knowledge about nursing care to all the cases. And I, I think that that is a very important question because the three of us up here, uh, we have access to probably the best of the best, and we can give the best of the best um, care to the patients, but it doesn't always exist that way. And I think it goes back to the challenge that I mentioned earlier are in community settings where they don't have the specialty support to help with the toxicity management is, you know, and the nurses don't always have the ability to know, well, I know how to, you know, respond to that type of adverse event. And I think the challenge is what do we do for the community at large? Um, And because patients are not keeping on their uh, regimens as long as they should be because the fear of man- the, the uncomfortableness with managing all these side effects. So I don't have an answer about what's the best way you know, to do this, but I think it's a gap that we have to um, address. I mean, I think the way that I see it is I view our nursing team as really integral in the infrastructure of our practice. It's not just sort of somebody who's there in the clinic just seeing patients and having their clinic day and that's it. Like, so I think in those community settings or those practice settings where that infrastructure is not necessarily in place, I think that that's actually an opportunity and a leadership opportunity mm-hmm. to actually help and say, hey, this is a certain way and standard that we should be treating our patients with RCC by or patients who get IO. Let's think about all the different ways that we can try to optimize this. So I don't think we practice in a silo as w- at all, and I think the field is evolving and we're constantly changing the way we do things in the clinic to make things better for our patients. Great. Um, Thank you very much for uh, coming here and I hope that you've learned something. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening.
download materials, and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash ASX 860. This activity is supported through medical education grants from Aveo Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Azi Incorporated, Exelixis Incorporated, and Merck & Company Incorporated.